everyone, and welcome to Light Conversations on Trauma podcast. Bringing conversations around hardship into the light. It's me, Peter Middleton, here, and I'll be hosting this podcast. This is a space for intimate and empathetic chat around trauma, big T or little t. We have regular sections to this podcast, so look out for them. And each episode, I'll be joined by a guest who will share their unique perspective. So sit back and relax, and I hope you enjoy the conversation. today with uh, Joe Bernstein and um, we've just had a conversation Joe asked me to introduce him the way that I see him in the world um, yeah Joe I see you as a transformational coach um, lover of humanity um, yeah here for the shift in consciousness I guess around um, where we're heading on the planet around around the ways that we live our life. Um, and I know that you're very keen to s- always state that um, to choose love over fear and courage over comfort and in- be an intentional creator over being a consumer of life. So those are the things that I think about when I, when I, I see you. So, um, yeah, thank you for joining me. You're welcome. You're welcome. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. So I usually start off these podcasts by um, asking you, what's your vibe? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Great. Such a great, interesting, wide question. Um, so, you know, I like to think that my vibe is actually pretty deep and rich and conscientious and intimate as far as how I relate with people. Uh, but hopefully also light and fun and passionate and excited when I've done work to actually check in with people that I know that I work with closely, check in with clients, check in with loved ones. A lot of the time there's some sort of essence from me that they get, which is transferred to them, which is they feel more calm and grounded and they feel more passionate and confident all at the same time. And so I really like to think and believe, even though I think vibe is really how other people receive me more than what I want to put out there in the world. Uh, I like to think that people receive me as like pretty calm and grounded and zen-like at the same time, capable of being extremely fiery and passionate um, and really grounded in a lot of confidence and uh, I think joy and gratitude too. So I hope that's how people experience me. I hope that's my vibe, you know? Uh, yeah. yeah. That's always the interesting uh, philosophical question is <laughs> what am I putting out there and how am I being received? <laughs> right. That's really awesome. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you've picked um, the first prompt that we're going to dive into is riding the waves of change. Riding the waves of change. 
say, what does that mean to you, Jay Bernstein? Oh, oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. So riding the waves of change, you know, um, the first thing that comes up for me is this, the metaphor, like the imagery of it. Right. Yeah. So the imagery of it is so often we have been sold this picture of life as if when you're doing it right, it's just like a calm, lazy river ride. You're in a little canoe and, you know, you're, it's really safe and there's plenty of room and there's good supplies and you're just rowing along nice and smoothly and there's no crocodiles or alligators anywhere, or hippos, and, and there's no curves or bends and it's just like really calm and serene and beautiful. Like that's that narrative. Well, when you're doing life right, it's smooth and easy and everything's just supposed to work. And in my experience of life, people that have extraordinary lives that they love or people that have, are building towards a life they love, right? Because some of us haven't quite gotten to that place where we're totally lit up and life's aligned. I mean, I know I'm, I'm, I'm just getting there now at 39, like eight years, nine years into deep transformational work, five years into my own coaching business. I'm still just getting there now in many ways. But those people that I see who are really going after what they want in life, they actually get rid of that conceptualization of a smooth ride. And they're all up in the reality of like, look, I can expect the canoe or maybe I expect the cruise ship when everyone's waiting on me and it's luxurious and it's big and it's safe and it stops me at all these great locations. But the reality is, is I got to learn to be a surfer on the open ocean and really powerful waves or really powerful rapids in a river because life is really rich and beautiful and juicy and amazing. And so often that richness and that juiciness and the capacity to change our lives comes in those moments where we are just totally uncertain and there's forces of, of nature, of forces of our life that are bigger than us. And we can't really feel safe or calm or luxurious in that moment. We actually have to trust and build skills to know that like, I might fall off this raft in the river. I might get wiped away by a big wave and to trust that, you know what, I'm going to get back up. I'm going to figure out and worst case is going to sweep me out back to shore and I'll get back on the, you know, on the mm. raft, I'll get back on the surfboard mm. and I'll come at it again. So I just love the metaphor when I think about change and growth. And as someone who does work day in and day out to help people change and transform their lives, mm -hmm. I love the idea, the imagery of riding the wave more so than like, floating down the river if you will you know what i mean yeah, yeah absolutely hear that for sure mm -hmm. and i just i love i love those analogies of of life in in terms of the ocean and and the water and the huge huge body of because the way that i see waves is actually energy you know it's it's perhaps the most visual form of pure energy that we can see and and i always used to think about surfers and like why are they so uh, sort of tapped in in a way like this <laughs> they're so kind of it does it does seem to promote that kind of awareness of 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 completeness of feeling whole as a part of that kind of chaos and yeah i completely agree it's like the the linear life like the 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 construct of of progress in in all in all forms it it kind of it it kind of yeah it kind of gets broken down when you think about surfing and sort of mm -hmm. and if you from my personal belief if you think about energy being 
everything in the world, right? It, it's, it's more, it's kind of a better analogy than, than thinking of that stream. And it's interesting to me because, because the general um, idea is that you work really hard and then you take a holiday, you take a holiday once a year and what do you do on holiday? And you just sit, you just sit around and it's like, you just sit around and you think of right. like someone on a, on a canoe in, on a stream it's kind of a similar, similar thing. It's like, yeah, it's like, that's, that's where we're aiming for. And I, mm-hmm. I think it, it sort of pushes a lot of disappointment maybe it's like, Oh, well now I'm here. Like now what? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I really love, I love the idea that you bring up forth, which is not the idea, the reminder that think about waves just such as powerful form of energy. And a lot of us are disconnected from some of the lessons of nature. Even if we like to spend time in nature, we're disconnected from the power of nature. Mm-hmm. And so many people are familiar with like the Bruce Lee quote, especially in, in the like personal growth world and the business world. People yeah. love the Bruce Lee quote, be like water, right? And there's all these conversations about, well, how do you interpret that statement? Mm-hmm. And the, the reality is water is life. We are water. Water is powerful. It can literally change, you know, the course of land. It can change geography. It can change our structures. It can be the thing that, that helps us survive. Or it can be the thing that wipes out a whole village in a tsunami, right? And so the reality is if we, if we look at water and being more like water, so often it's a matter of can we learn to go with the flow of life but also not abdicate our choices and responsibility. Mm-hmm. Can we learn to be powerful naturally without force? You know? yeah. Which is so often what I see water as is I remember one time. So, so let's tell, I want to tell a story about some of my transformations, right? Like yeah. I remember in 2013, I was going through, I was separa- separating and going through a breakup with my ex-wife. We were ending our marriage. And that was the opening. That was like the crack in the shell, the crack in the armor that allowed me to believe I could have a better life. I built this life up that I thought was better than I would ever have a chance for it to be. I was married and we had great income and we traveled and I had a good career. And growing up as a young dude, like I actually never thought I would have those things. I thought I would die early from obesity-related issues because I was well over 300 pounds. I thought I would never have a great love life because a million reasons, but a lot to do with how my parents related and what I thought I saw in their relationship. So what I thought I saw love was, and I had learning disabilities. So I thought like I wouldn't have a great career because I can't do college. And where I come from, it's like you get into a good college and you get a great degree or you're just a failure at life, right? Right. So I was going through this huge awakening where I was realizing my career that I'd love, which is better than I thought I'd ever have, was starting to wrap up, starting to come to an end. I'd lost passion and my, my marriage was over. My ex-wife walked out on me. And I remember spending, like, just being drawn to nature and being drawn to streams and being drawn to rivers. And here in DC, there's the Potomac River, powerful river going into the Chesapeake Bay from the Atlantic Ocean, or to the Atlantic Ocean, I should say. Mm-hmm. And, and it's epic. And there's this place called Great Falls, which is a national park. And it was 15 minutes or so drive from my condo back then. So I would drive out there and I would just sit and I would meditate or I'd hike. And I'd stop by these powerful points where there was these massive rapids. 
And I remember just thinking, this is a teacher right now. Like it is literally showing me that if I can learn to be like water, to be like nature, then I'll always find my path. There's no overthinking, which me and guys like me and people I tend to help have a lot of challenges with overthinking and overanalyzing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of challenges around like, well, what direction should I go based on the values and beliefs that I've consumed from my family, from my work life, from the culture. Mm-hmm. And here I am realizing riding the waves of change would be being able to step into more a more grounded but powerful place like this powerful water. So what would that look like? And I know that for me, it was like a lot of stepping back and trying to reverse engineer well, what would it really look like to be in a place where I'm confident with where I want to go? I know the direction, but I don't know all the steps and I don't know the path, but I just move towards it with full commitment, full power. And so, yeah, the water metaphor is amazing. And yeah. uh, it's, so, it's so powerful. I'm curious too, like what, what comes up for you when with that whole prompt? It's, it's your, your prompt. Yeah. It's actually really brilliant. And Thanks. What, do you, what do you think about when you think of like riding the waves of change? Yeah, thanks for asking. Um, I uh, have a very similar uh, relationship to that. It's um, it's something that always was a constant in my life through um, very, very challenging things, um, through trauma that I experienced and, and trying. Uh, it's a strange thing. I always had a kind of awareness that I wasn't just the uh, traumas and experiences that I had experienced. Um, and I guess um, going out and hiking and surfing, like I did learn to surf when I was a, um, a teenager, but also martial art practice and then later on um, energy practice with, with Reiki really taught me that I am a part of the rhythms of nature and and i i used to go out there a lot like it was kind of an obsession for me to go out and hike um i basically spent any opportunity any day off that i could in nature and i'd 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 try and pick the most remote <laughs> and kind of hostile or well, my perception of hostile environment that i could and just over those experiences, just repeatedly being kind of buffeted by the wind or standing on a clifftop looking over a stormy ocean or um, with my experiences of traveling, like um, one springs to mind is the tip. I went to the tip of India where three oceans meet and I watched the sunset over three oceans. Um, just the colors that I'd never been able to perceive before in that place. And yeah, just all started dawning on me that kind of, and this theme of water, um, you know, as flexible and, you know, like the Buddhists thought that, you know, if, if water comes up against an obstacle, yes, it can erode it, but it also, it can choose to just, just, evade it around the sides and and it always takes the path of least resistance and that's what it means to me like to be like water is that it can be powerful it can be some of mother nature's and I've been in some surf that kind of made me feel like I was gonna perish in that moment and it's right 
and and kind of mother nature's like absolute and awesome um force there and then just sort of being in japan for example and and being in a temple around the sort of dripping water intentional sort of meditation tools that they use um to to, to really highlight the the kind of fragile nature of of water also um so yeah i can really see all of life in in that there's quite a lot here and i'm gonna give you one more um oh, yeah um there's like three states of water right um but they've actually found out that water can exist in a fourth state yeah. um which is between solid and liquid um so it ionizes i think it 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 creates a charge which is like positive and negative and and so it can buffer between um objects as well so that's how a lizard can like run over the surface of 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 water um so maybe i haven't described that completely well but um i just think there's there's those kind of realms of possibility within water it can exist in every every state as well yeah so there's more states than we realize and think about when it comes to life when it comes to water and comes to change yeah in fact you know that brings Mm -hmm. something up for me but you know i'd love to do peter is like in each of these segments if we have a couple moments to teach something yeah i'm pretty sure i can come up with some sort of teaching and i'm thinking about one right now Mm -hmm. so what i often what i'd love to share is some of the cycles of change Mm. And this is somewhat related to, I believe, some Hindu spiritual beliefs around life. I've repurposed it a little, a thousand people have probably repurposed it before me. But the reality is, I've noticed that change tends to happen in a three-stage cycle. Hmm. Creation, integration, and destruction, or disintegration, one of the two. Either one, choose your language, right? And essentially what tends to happen is, as human beings, we get really addicted to one of two stages. We either get addicted to creation, and we only feel like we're really alive, and we're really valuable, and really worthy, and life is good, when we're in a creation phase. We're starting something new, we're very creative, we're getting wins and rewards for all the work that we're putting in. We're creating change, or we're creating growth, or we're creating a relationship, like, so people get really addicted to that. That's how, why some people can only hold down a job or a relationship for like eight months or 12 months because they love the newness. And the newness is great. It's enlivening. It's so rich. But in reality, to get the newness to actually be sustainable and to integrate it into our lives, to create change long-term, the next phase is integration. We have to learn to take all the things we've created, all the things we've learned, the ways we've grown and changed, and we have to learn to integrate them into a deeper place. Mm-hmm. Maybe if we're talking about our being, our body, it's like move it from head level learning or experiencing down to heart and guts and full body experiencing. Or we're talking about skill sets that we've learned that we want to take from, say, like conscious competence to unconscious competence where we can just do it naturally. It's just integrated into part of who we are communication Mm. skill a new way of being this could be a new way of eating after you've lost a bunch of weight or something or you gotten healthy and then you realize like well now i have to figure out my maintenance mode because i'm not going to do what i did to get here right Mm, so same thing with relationships people in relationships 
they don't love the work that it takes to move from new relationship, new love, to deeply establishing shared values, shared communication strategies and techniques, if you will, and ways of being together, setting up boundaries, learning how to communicate boundaries, having those hard conversations that take it from like new love to a real juicy, rich relationship of meaning and partnership. Mm -hmm. So, so often people don't know how to do the integration phase or they get addicted to the integration phase. And what that means is they get addicted to comfort of stability. They get addicted to like being on a plateau, Mm -hmm. right? And they, and they fear the next part, destruction. So everything that's good at some point needs to either be destroyed or needs to be dismantled in some way. So we have space for creation in the next phase of the cycle. Yeah. Now, a lot of the time people unconsciously sabotage relationships, you know, friendships, careers, health, because they're not conscious that, okay, there does need to be some sort of breakdown of what's worked. What's worked is only going to work for so long. So they resist. They want to stay in the stasis of integration phases or they want to stay in the excitement, right, of like the building, the creation phases of life. And they resist the destruction phase, but then automatically they'll start to self-sabotage or the world will start to put up roadblocks, which will sabotage their efforts rather than being conscious about what needs to be removed and taken down or recreated. Mm -hmm. And it's so important because when we don't, take the, the destruction phase consciously, it kicks our ass. And we go yeah. through midlife and quarter-life crises. And we go through really hard breakups. And we go through periods in between jobs that we hate and can't figure out what's next. And so that's often a time to... Actually, all three of them can be a time to really get help, but often to get conscious of like, what do I need to take apart so I can move to the next part? What do I need to let go of so I can actually create and grow again? Yeah. And these these three stages, they're working in cycles and they, they're never they're never ending. We never just get to an integration phase where we're just there forever. Mm-hmm. Different parts yeah. of life will keep going through the cycle. And often there's co- congruent or co-occurring parts of our life where we're in different stages of the cycle. I might be in an integration phase with my personal health right now because I did a bunch of cleansing and I worked with the trainer last year and I'm like rocking it out, doing getting Reiki by Peter, you know, it's like I'm in this integration phase, but meanwhile, in my business, there's a destruction phase, like something wasn't working and I need to consciously dismantle to create space for change for some new creation, right? Yeah, yeah. And so we have these cycles that are always occurring and the more we can understand them, the more we can understand there are parts of riding the waves of change in life, Mm -hmm. the better we get at really understanding growth and change and healing too. I know you're Mm -hmm. big on healing, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. The more we understand healing, because healing works similarly too. Think about a physical mm-hmm. injury or an emotional injury. Mm-hmm. A lot of it looks very similar to this. Yeah. So yeah. I wanted to share that. I hope that's helpful for people listening. That's great. Thanks so much for sharing. Yeah, it's. Um, I just kept hearing that like there's a, I can't remember his name, but there was a guy that was surrounded um, by um, Freud at the time. He said that um, character traits are, are psychosis. And it's kind of, it, it, it speaks to the sense that, you know, all, all great philosophers are, are a, they're really focused on the destruction part because it seems to be the like hardest part for humanity um, to mm-hmm. breach, you know. And it's just like our kind of learning um, phases are, are just so focused on like, oh, if I can just get safety, security, then I'll be fine. 
I'll be fine. Right. And yeah. then it's like that, that place where you get to, like I experience it when I'm running up the hill, I have a hill that I run up all the time and I think, right, I just need to get to the top. And it seems to be this kind of mental construct of, you know, how we motivate ourselves through something challenging. It seems to be part of very integral part of it to imagine ourselves at the top. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. And then yeah, totally important. And then right now look at our world. Mm. We're, we're in a world where there's a lot of people that are calling for social and political change on a mass level for human mm. rights of all people, especially people of color right? mm-hmm. and women and, and transgendered humans. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people that are addicted to that stability of what they think is stability of an integration phase, they're looking at creators of a new reality and fearing them as destroyers of the current comfort. Yeah. And so even as we understand these three cycles of riding the waves of change, we can start to see some of the interpersonal and personal and group level and, and global dynamics that are occurring in our life, in our world right now, mm-hmm. and understand where some of the fear is coming from, where there's, I did it myself. I remember when people started talking about like, dismantle the patriarchy, like destroy toxic masculinity. There's this part of me that was like, oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're telling me that all men are bad and that men should be disadvantaged and marginalized and blah, like, mm-hmm. Actually, that wasn't what they were telling me at all. I was just too afraid. I was too addicted to the current status quo of being a you know, yeah. cis white man in America, middle class, to be able to see that these are people who are offering us a creation of a new reality that I actually want aligns with my values. Mm-hmm. But I can't see them that way because I'm still in the phase where I'm, I'm, where I'm resisting the destruction or the dismantling phase, you know? Yeah. A disintegration phase. Uh, and I think um, it, that comes back nicely to a uh, circle with, with the Vedic culture, you know, because they, they worship um, Shiva as the, both the destroyer and, and the seeds of life are in the destruction. So, so, so their philosophy is because you always have seeds of life in destruction, always. And I think it's, again, it speaks to the, the kind of fear and mental constructs. I'm, I'm reading a book called the denial of death at the moment, which is super heavy. Um, but it's, it's really pretty light. Yeah. I thought that was like a comedic comedic book. Yeah. That was a joke, but yeah, it is kind of a joke. Is it? (laughs) But, um, yeah. So he was, he's saying like the denial of death is, is perhaps the biggest human question, you know, and it's, it's actually necessary for us to deny death to a certain extent and, and for it to become uh, a, like a motor skill in a way because, yeah, he was arguing that it's very hard to handle our own destruction. Yeah. Um, so that, that kind of framework to get us through it is, is kind of really essential. I guess, yeah, like what you were saying about mentally, like bringing us out of our mind and into our bodies, I think our bodies know, right? Our bodies are very much more capable of handling this cycle. It's our mind that flips out. Yeah. And and that's kind of where all the chemicals are told, like and regulated to to do whatever in our bodies. So Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. It it, it puts us really nicely into the next um, prompt, which is around yeah. grief. Sure, sure, absolutely. <laughs> That's awesome.
Yeah. So grief. I mean, it's such a it's such a, a base human experience, isn't it? It's, it's so rich, complex. Mm-hmm. Um, but what does it what does it bring up for you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Grief. You know, I actually. So I do. Uh, so part of my lens on the world is, I actually believe that emotional intelligence is bullshit. Okay. I assume I can. I assume I can curse. Yeah, sure. Okay. I think emotional intelligence is bullshit. I think it's the version of just enough emotional capacity and social capacity to be considered capable in corporate leadership positions. So the way the world has taught us to be emotionally intelligent is actually kind of dumb. It's really focused on transactional relationships with specific business outcomes. And that is honestly become the holy grail at times for people that develop, especially men, especially successful men. But I think also women, a lot of the time, they're, they're, they're seeing this very academic, you know, Harvard Business Review, Daniel Goleman version of emotions and what it means to be emotionally intelligent. But intelligence is not intuition. It's not wisdom. And it's not relational ability all the time. So I like to say that that's the starting point that really a lot of the time emotional intelligence is emotional constipation and emotional diarrhea and enough charisma to get by and get good scores with people like in corporate settings. That's amazing. (laughs) I love you for saying that just now. So so I want to help bring people into more emotional competence and emotional mastery. Mm -hmm. And that was vital for me, right? Because I was a guy who literally won awards in my first career for like, leadership capacity and being aligned with my company's values and vision. And I was considered very emotionally intelligent. Like I wasn't organizationally that strong as far as like organizing, as far as like things like loss prevention and operations. I wasn't an ops guy. I was a people's guy. Mm -hmm. And I got great scores on emotional intelligence. That was like my currency. But the reality was I wasn't that emotionally intelligent because I could read people well but I didn't know how to really experience and feel sadness or grief. And I didn't know how to really experience and feel deep joy. And I didn't really know how to understand or experience shame at all. And at a lot of the time, all I really had was this pretend nice guy way of acting like I was emotionally intelligent. And I understood like emotions made more sense to me than the average person, but I didn't know how to feel them and experience them. I didn't know how to draw the wisdom from them. So over time, especially during that, that breakup, that divorce period where I was losing a bunch of weight and I was learning to date with integrity and power and I was going through all of the inner work to understand why did this marriage fall apart, I started to learn that I was actually pretty disconnected from my emotions. Now, eventually, you know, I started working with a coach I still work with on and off and and at one point, he had cornered me, and he's like, bro, you're way up in the, in the positive psychology here, man. And I'm glad it's helping you, but it will limit you if you don't develop a, more of a closeness to sadness and grief, which sounded crazy to me at the time. He explained, you're not going to be able to empathize a lot of the time with people that you want to lead. It might be hard if you have a partner that like experiences more grief than you, right? It might be hard for you to connect with, with clients that really want your help, but maybe they're going through a grief period, right? And so I started to work on sadness and open it up and develop it more. And so 
a lot of time we've been taught again, especially as men, that like sadness or grief is weakness. Mm. We shouldn't have it. It's not supposed to be there. When we feel it, we should suck it up right away, right? Boys don't cry, mm-hmm. you know, walk it off, toughen up. How often are young men experiencing deep trauma because they were betrayed in an early relationship? You're 16, you're 17, you're 18, you're 19 years old, the first person you love, man, mm-hmm. woman, non-binary human, you're in love. Mm-hmm. And, and somehow you get betrayed. It doesn't have to be that you got cheated on or whatever, but like, you were lied to, you were left, you know, you were promised things that weren't delivered. And same with women too. Same goes for women too. But especially for men, I look at like, they were hurt, they were crushed. And what's supposed to happen? Like, maybe you go cry to your mom, you have a good relationship with your mom, if your mom's in the picture and she's not um, a weird codependent mom, like a lot of <laughs> moms tend to be in today's day and age after it's like all the stuff. That, right? Yeah, we could get, that's a whole other podcast, yeah, right? It is, like, would, yeah. By the way, I love moms. I think moms are like the source source energy of the universe. I'm not shitting on yeah. moms. Moms yeah. are the best. Even like the worst mom sure. is a goddess, okay? So yeah. like, let's just frame that. And parenting's and, hard. Yeah, parent, parenting is really hard. I'm watching, you know, my sister has a 13. <laughs> my older sister is a 13-year-old and a 10-year-old right now during a pandemic. My younger sister just had her first baby. Bella's amazing. Oh, I just yeah. saw her yesterday. She lights up my life. But like, Oh, I'm so, and I don't have kids yet, and I really want them with my partner. And so I'm so aware that parenting is hard. I had a long mm-hmm. conversation last night with my older sister, like, wow. So, mm-hmm. but the point is, maybe we go and grieve a little bit with our mom, but anyone else, mm-hmm. usually dad or uncles, you don't go to them. Your friends, you can't even act like you're hurt. Yeah, that's You got to go to your friends and be like, I dumped her. Oh, she sucked. You're going to use the B word or the C word and call her names and tell her why, you know, really you've been flirting with Sherry and Sherry's so much hotter and blah, blah, blah. So you have to pretend like you don't experience loss mm-hmm. a lot of the time to, to get your man card, right? To be in the That's man huge. box, if you will. Mm. And so we don't learn how to grieve. And a lot of the time, no matter, even really progressive parents, I have friends who are, have young kids and they admit this. So like, wow. I let my daughter cry. But when I think about it, even though I'm into all this like dismantling toxic masculinity and being a feminist and all that, they're like, I really actually get frustrated with my son when he's crying. Right. So we're taught very often very different ways of experiencing grief. So I've noticed that grief is one of the richer experiences of life. When I stopped believing that it was bad or wrong or made me weak, I noticed that it actually deepened my soul. And it deepened my capacity to relate to others. And I know this for a fact that when we limit one emotion, we limit the emotion that's the most directly polar opposite of that. Hmm. So when, when, when we limit our capacity to feel sadness and grief, we extremely limit our capacity to feel deep, embodied, rich joy or celebration or gratitude. Mm-hmm. So, so that's, that's, that's one thing I think about when it comes to grief. I'm really lucky that I've found out, I've figured out how to grieve because mm-hmm. I wouldn't be where I'm at today right now without that. And frankly, sometimes the most healing thing in the world is grieving. I got a client where we just signed up for another year. He worked for six months and he's a dude who's like really tough CMO of this big company. He's owned companies in the past. He's writing a book. He's like kind of a badass at work, but he's just realizing now in his forties, like 
he is disconnected and it's hurting his emotion. His, he's hurting his own spiritual life. He's very religious and it's hurting his family. And so he literally said to me, it's like, took on this new job. It's really hard. His, his kids are, you know, in this pandemic too, dealing with it as well. Him and his wife have been getting closer, but they're like seven years of having a rift and getting closer and closer every day. There's pain. And he just said to me, like, I feel like I have to cry, but I can't. Mm-hmm. Peter, I hear that all the time from men. It's like, yeah. I feel like there's one in there, but I don't know how. It's like my body won't let me. So I'm literally going and doing a complimentary half-day intensive with him this Saturday. And I said, we're going to take a walk in the woods and you're going to cry. Like, we're going to figure out how to get your body to let you cry because yeah. it will release all this energy for him to move forward. So, you know, I've said a lot and uh, yeah. I have stories I'd love to share about grief, but I'd love to kick it back to you. Like, what are you hearing when you, what are you pulling mm. out of that? What are some of the gems or things you want people to pay attention to from that? Yeah. Thank you. That was such a great and deep share. I mean, it's, it's, it's really, I think it's, it's one of the crux, crux pieces of life, you know, grief. I, lo- I love what you say about limiting emotion. Like it's so true. If you limit one emotion, then you, you limit the, the polar opposite and, and almost that has a knock on effect, but I can completely resonate with the, the sense that I couldn't cry. I couldn't cry for, uh, you know, I couldn't cry really properly until I was maybe about 26. It was the first time I cried without the shame of the act of crying, you know? You're advanced, uh, man. You're advanced. Yeah, well, thanks. 26 is pretty good for the, the dude in today's age. Yeah, I think I think you're right. And it, I think that that gives me gratitude for, for my story of, of trauma in a way. It's like I had so much shit in there that I... I had to find a way to cry naturally. Otherwise, you know, I would have had to have chosen to perish instead, you know, like it's, Mm. yeah, it's, it's, there's, there's a double edged sword. It's like a gratitude thing. And it's also like, yeah, the, the, going back to the energy, the energy pushed me so, so much to find that way to grieve. And I think, the only way that we can find forgiveness and find compassion and find love for ourselves is to, to grieve um, those ruptures as well. That's what I'm hearing. You have to grieve those parts of your life. We have to surrender to the lesson of that moment and know that people are imperfect. They're perfectly imperfect. Know that life doesn't always go your way. And it's that surrender in, into grief that, that allows, and I, I don't know, my, my, um, grandma passed, um, recently during COVID and I just had this really epic experience at her funeral, um, because it was socially distanced and we couldn't touch anybody. Um, it was such an internal experience for me and these just waves of grief were just rising up through my body and just releasing pain just releasing all this pain into it and I was crying my eyes out and you know when I think about funerals of loved ones before like I I felt that constriction around crying like uh, even at a funeral it you know the waves would come and I'm the sort of person that is always because I'm a hypersensitive person I've always felt things very viscerally so 
in many cases, it's not a choice for me whether I cry or not. It's like the energy builds up in me until I can't hold it back yeah. sort of thing. Yeah. So, but, but having that experience of surrendering to grief at my grandma's funeral mm-hmm. and allowing those waves to pass through me, it was the one thing I wanted to say about that is it, it, it taught me that I am, I'm doing a lot of work around healthy shame right now and how it tells you that you are not omnipotent. You are a human being living a human experience. And this right. thing about grief for me is that it very much teaches me that because it's very much a force greater than my understanding. And the only way that I, I can truly experience that is to surrender to it. Hmm. So beautiful and so rich. Um, I'm sorry for your loss and I'm so impressed by the, the real wisdom that you carry around emotions and that you allowed yourself that I, I often, and it's interesting because like, I'm not a grief counselor. My priorities in work with my clients is in creating more richness and growing their lives. But often what ends up happening is they're not fully committed to something that they say they want. And, and, and my job in that moment is if they keep showing up, not following through, not fully committed to something they want, is to know there's a chance. Now, I can't be right 100% of the time. There's a chance. There's something that is t- holding them back. They haven't let go of. I haven't grieved yet. So I'm very often assigning clients like, okay, so you sold your law firm and you made a bunch of money and you didn't have to work for three years. And now you're, you're getting into the point where you want to start this new business, but you're, you're, not, you're kind of slow to work on it. Well, let me ask you this question. Even though that was a win, did you grieve what you lose, what you lost? Did you acknowledge the significance of what you gave up on a personal level, on a professional level, monetarily maybe maybe it's about connection and meaning like i had a client who he that scenario like sold his firm is like law firm because he wanted to do stuff that was more helpful to people and their bodies and their healing and i literally was like what about the relationships had him go back do a bunch of like journaling and he's like you know what a meaningful relationship with was with the custodian tim every day i'd have like a legit conversation with him as i walked in with my coffee you know and what end up what ha- what happened all the time is like people need to grieve things that looked like they were wins. I needed to go back and grieve my several relationships after my last relationship because I'd never done it. I'd never done it, you know. And and so and I loved what you said about grief and gratitude. I actually believe that grief and gratitude are two. They go hand in hand. Mm. When we practice accessing grief and we practice accessing gratitude. They open each other more and more and more, and life just becomes so boldly rich that creates amazing moments where we can connect vulnerably and mutually with people that we care about when we're in both gratitude and grief. And so I love assigning like little practices for people that let's lean into gratitude practice and let's dig into some things that you can grieve that don't even necessarily, it wasn't like a, 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 a death of someone. It wasn't like you broke up. It was just like, a part of your life that you moved on past, but you never acknowledge the significance of. It weighs mm. us down and keeps us from moving forward with you know, unbounded commitment to the things that we really love mm. when we haven't like, actively processed letting go of what was, what was positive or powerful or even painful. Yeah, that's incredible. 
I'm also when you said that I was reminded of the kind of Japanese philosophy obviously they have so much like amazing philosophy and I think wabi-sabi is is the term you know it's like appreciating beauty because it's it's it will pass I think you know this too shall pass in in the Greek canon is is because you know the most visceral parts of life and the most enjoyable and joyous parts of life are often the most fleeting and 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 it takes it takes an awareness of the fleeting moment um to make that joy what it what it is right it seems to be necessary yeah, and I know I know you rang the bell already, but do you mind if I ask a question <laughs> no, about cool. this? Let's keep going. <laughs> is is there something that 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 has it's surprising to you that you needed to grieve it, but you had to go back, or you chose to go back and grieve something where you're like, wow, that doesn't even seem like a great that I should be grieving it, but it, it, I am. Yeah, what's that? Absolutely. Thank you so much for asking that. That's such a great question. Um, I made a decision when I was very young to start playing football because football, I mean, soccer for the Americans, um, football was the number one sport that men played in and it was a validation. I My favourite activity was, was actually chess. <laughs> I love chess and I used to play for my county. I was really good and I gave that up and I started mm-hmm. playing football and I, I was really good at football also. Like I was a really good defender. Like I started playing for my um, lots of clubs and like I was really valued and I had a really valuable experience with that. And it seemed like a really big plus in my life, really positive thing. Gave me so much and it taught me so much and around community and discipline and, and joy and excitement and winning things and losing things. But that moment for me, when I chose football over myself was a moment that I had no idea. I had no idea that I needed to grieve that. It's and amazing. It's, yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. Uh, mine was like a, mm-hmm. my last long relationship. I made the choice to end it. And I thought, and I was confident it was the right choice. Um, and I thought to myself, well, I'm the one ending it. And I'm the one moving towards some bigger vision with what I want. And I, you know, uh, and then it hit me like, um, I want to talk about riding the waves of change. Yeah. I thought I was going to like have all this energy to focus on growing my business and go out and get, like date a bunch of women and get back in the mix and like have fun. Mm-hmm. And immediately after for months, it just swept me right into a big old piece of deep, deep, deep piece of grief. I, I didn't expect that I'd have to grieve deeply and deeply. And I think I really learned to grieve in a big embodied way. Mm-hmm. About, that was about two years ago after that relationship. And I was thinking, well, I don't have anything to grieve. I Hopefully I can help her grieve a little or someone can help her grieve a little. But nope, it was me. I needed to grieve yeah. hardcore. Right. I think that's a good um good flashlight i like the the t- the kind of analogy of the flashlight flashlight of awareness both for you know what you're directing your your yeah. energy towards but also the thing that's behind you in complete darkness that might come up <laughs> creep up behind you and slap you around the face um and there's always going to be those things right and it's kind of like 
I've had those moments as well where it's like, oh, okay, that's a complete surprise and it feels horrible. Um, yeah. But here it is. <laughs> right. Yeah, but, it is. but they come, but it comes with, it comes with gifts, you know, grief comes with gifts that we can be grat- grateful for. Right. Mm, mm-hmm. three, three G's. <laughs> it, it, it did. It, it got me to yeah. think more about my spirit and my soul and to think more about grief on an embodied level. And so mm-hmm. I became richer in how I connect to who I am. And that was really vital for me to be able to create the relationship I'm currently in. Mm. So, yeah, all these gifts. All these gifts. Seems amazing. It lights you up, right? So Yeah, it does. <laughs> yeah, it really does. Amazing. Yeah. It's cool. Wow. Thank you so much for that. Um, let's move on to the the prompt, the third prompt around shame. So share a shame is the name. I always felt this, but I never feel like I could tell anyone. Share a shame. Um, I guess I feel cool to 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 um, describe why, because I think shame is a huge problem actually in our society. There's, and I know for me, it's only it was only this year, and I'm 32 now. Um, it was only this year that I really perceived the the sense that it could be a healthy shame. Yeah, that exists in the world, and shame was this word that kind of like in the model of society was this kind of thing that that silenced me and made me feel inadequate and was the kind of toxic version of of so and yeah i just the research with um around brenny brown which i know that you you follow as well is like shame cannot um exist in in the light if you bring it into the light so i wanted to to invite you to share something you've you've either previously felt ashamed about or you currently absolutely you know thank you so much shame and me are funny um Mm. you know i I like to so so one thing i've learned is that different people have different natural abilities to access different emotions okay whether it's natural ability or whether it's learned ability now i grew up as a guy who you know i'm standing here today and i'm pretty healthy and pretty trim, but like from three or four years old, I was a big, heavy child. And I spent a lot of time being picked on, being teased by not just other boys, but literally by coaches and teachers and guidance counselors. And frankly, uh, in the 80s in the US and 90s in the US, even Doctors, even doctors pretty much would harass heavy kids. And I believe that's the truth is there was just harassment and messaging that I'm less than or wrong or broken every day, combined with some of the learning disabilities that I had, which made it hard for me to really fit into the box of academia cleanly and clearly in a way that I'm supposed to. So all I had all kinds of messages left and right from the world that I was less than or wrong or broken. But as an adult, I was almost like immune to feeling shame. So I believe that for me as a young kid, I felt so much shame that my body just shut it off. My mind just shut it off, the channel to it. It was so deep and so real that the channel was shut off. Right. So I spent a lot of time trying to figure out why is it that so many people feel like not good enough. But I never have that thought. I never have that thought, not good enough. Mm. 
Um, or people think like I'm broken or I'm bad, right? And I was never have that thought. So what I've had to learn in just the last few years is shame is very different for me. It shows up in different ways, right? Where some people think like, I'm not a good enough partner. I'm not a good enough this. I'm not, I'm not good enough in general. There's something wrong with me for thinking this, feeling this, experiencing this. Mm. My shame tends to show up in very different ways. My shame sounds like I can't. Like I don't have the skill. I don't have the resource. I don't have the time. That's a big one for me. I don't have the time. But that's just a cover-up for I don't believe that I'm good enough to go after that or to create it. So my brain and body or my psyche, whatever you want to call it, my spirit, has come up with really tricky and slippery, magician-y ways, if you will, and, and like Jungian theory, to hide shame. To hide shame. And so I've noticed that my tells for experiencing shame are... If I'm not able, if I'm looking down and not looking at someone, which is so rare for me, the only times these days that it actually happens, my deepest, deepest, deepest shadows. If we're talking about shame, I think we've got to talk about shadows. Yeah, shadows sure. Are, shadows are the messages, the beliefs about ourselves or about the world that we hide, repress, and deny that we form at a young age when we're or at a vulnerable point in life when we are great observers of behavior, terrible interpreters of behavior. Yeah, absolutely. So like, right, like, you know, dad is really stressed and anxious about money. And so you ask for an ice cream cone and dad's like, you don't need the ice cream cone. You've already had too much sugar, right? So then you start to take on this belief that you are broken, wrong, and fucked up if you want sugar or if you ask for something delicious as a treat. Right. And yeah. then you go and eat Ben and Jerry's every third night, like a, in, a hidden in a closet as an adult, because you're like reenacting that shame cycle. Mm. And, and, and so we take on these beliefs at a young age. And so for me, the belief that I took on most deeply at a young age is like, I don't love right. Like typically the deepest shadows show up as I'm not good enough. I'm broken. I'm unlovable. And then the one that I think shows up for me is I don't love right. So, when I feel shame, it's around like, oh, I didn't spend enough time with my niece and nephew. I'm a bad uncle. Mm. Or in my love relationship, if at any point I find myself going to old ways of being, which tend to be more anxious and more aggressive. If I notice I'm in a tension with my partner, Natalie, and we're having a disagreement, and I start to feel and hear this tone of like domination, I'm trying to intellectually dominate her. I will notice that and go deep into shame. And so what I notice is I go from this guy who's like trying to prove my point. I know I'm right. She's somehow violating me by not listening to me or not hearing me or not understanding me or not caring enough. And then all of a sudden the switch is flipped and I realize oh, I'm doing that thing that I've worked so hard not to do, be aggressive or frustrated with her. And so that's when I feel shame. And what I'll notice is, okay, all of a sudden I got quiet. My aggressive energy went away and I'm having a hard time looking her in the eye. That's a big shame. That's a big shame. That, point, isn't it? Yeah. That to me is probably the time that I most am aware of feeling shame is I'm not the perfect lover and not the perfect partner. I'm not the perfect Zen mindful 
emotionally competent, masterful man for her in this moment. And I immediately go to like, I'm bugged up. I'm broken. I'm going to be just like my dad. I thought I was better than this. All this work I've done on myself and on my spirit, my communication, my relationships, it's, no, it's nothing. I'll still be this vicious jerk, you know? Even when I'm, I'm just not being a vicious jerk. I'm just being like a two on the aggression scale from a one to 10. <laughs> so, but but that, that's how shame tends to show up for me. I have shame around, I got frustrated and I didn't stay zen and I didn't stay cool with her. And then boom, it hits me. Like I'm broken. I can't love right. Mm. Yeah, first off, I want to say sorry that you went through that as a child. You know, it's that speaks of um, systemic oppression to me, really, in a way. And um, I'm taking this great course um, by Sandra Kim, who I know yeah. you, you, uh, you know, and she says, you know, there's 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 multiple aspects to to that oppression, and and you know, everyone needs to be defined by a weaker, um, quote unquote, like perceived weaker, um, person in society. Mm. And it's just, it's just, just makes me sad, I guess. Yeah. Um, um, I definitely resonate a lot with what you're saying in, in terms of shame. It's, it's not just this thing that kind of hit, like, it's not just this thing that, that shows up in your thoughts. And I think a lot of the time we, um, I guess in Western thought, we, <laughs> there it is, Western thought, we, we kind of idolize the thinking brain and, and I agree, like shame shows up for me, you know, in a heavy forehead, mm. really heavy legs, like, yeah, just the similar kind of thing. It's like, I really struggle to, to like set boundaries, for example, or if I try and fail at something, it's, I'll go straight into the, to the really heavy stuff, you know, like, um, like you said, um, I'll never be good enough or like I've done all this work and still I'm back here kind of thing. That kind of idea of like, I'm back to square one, which isn't actually possible. It's that's a kind of ideology. Rather, right. <laughs> it's a, you know, rather than a life experience. Right. Yeah. Uh, I'm glad you brought that up. The, 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 we've idolized our, our intellect. Mm. So because we've idealized our intellect, which again, I'm big on, I'll tell you, Peter, like my sweet spot is working with people who have idolized their intellect and they've succeeded tremendously because of intellect, but it's right. polite. It's, it's resulted in like overthinking and being disconnected from intuition and not knowing emotions or the body well. But do you, do you yeah. mean um, they've analyzed their intellect or their intelligence? Do you, do you see a differentiation in those two? Mm, yes, yes. Because I think to me, intellect, and I could be totally wrong because I'm informally educated, like my vocabulary isn't great. But That's I see shame, intellect. Isn't it? <laughs> what? That, 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 that there, there wasn't. There wasn't an education system designed for the way someone like me thinks. Yeah, it's yeah. sad. It's sad. Um, I don't. I'm, I'm done with shame around like I didn't fit into the academia box. Forget Good. that. That's I kind of feel like I'd probably have more shame if I spent years getting multiple higher level degrees and then realizing like uh, maybe I don't have a mission in life that's valuable or related to my values. But anyway, Absolutely. so point is, um, I believe when we think about intellect, it's like an identity based relationship to 
um, traditional academic intelligence. Mm-hmm. Now, I think there's a lot of intelligences. There's emotional intelligences, as we've talked about, and embodied intelligences, and kinesthetic intelligences, and spatial intelligences, and artistic or like, you know, um, energy-based intelligences, earth-based intelligences, nurturing or nature or body-based intelligence. There's so many. But I feel, I think about intellect, I totally think about head-based intelligence and academic-based intelligence. Um, So yeah, that's what I I believe and it's time to like work down. But part of that process is we also don't know what shame feels like in our body or in our energy. So a lot of, I I believe a lot of people in our world right now are experiencing their shame as digestive disorder and sexual dysfunction. Right. So we haven't processed and digested parts of life and we still have shame around them. And so people have irritable bowel syndrome, which by the way, if you have irritable bowel syndrome, it's the medical system's way of sounding like they know what they're talking about when they're really telling you, we have no idea how to fix your gut. That's Mm. irritable. That's literally irritable bowel syndrome. It's not a particular syndrome. It's just, we know you're irritated. We can't figure it out. So people have digestive issues. People have gas, people have bloating. People have times where they're feeling a lot of shame, a lot of diarrhea, and especially men. You know, there's a lot around women, but I've mostly worked with men when it comes to sexuality. Um, a lot, and I've experienced this myself, I've experienced all of it myself, is uh, either premature ejaculation or challenges with erections. That's huge for men, younger and younger these days. It's not physical. It's emotional, it's spiritual. Mm-hmm. And it's related to either not being deeply connected to our values and a mission in life that's important. So some part of our body is like, you don't deserve sexual pleasure or some weird, you know, Puritan yep. thought process. Our body absorbs it and takes it over. Um, so that's something to know is people who are like, I don't have a lot of shame. But if you're having a lot of stomach issues or you're having like erectile dysfunction issues or are challenges with just general sexual functionality or joy or pleasure and receiving and giving in sex. So often that can be a, a, a hint of there's some shame to work through. Yeah. Thanks it lives in the body, you know? Yeah. Thanks for bringing that up. Cause I think it's really important um, to note that. And I guess when I'm investigating how I feel sometimes if yeah, if it's like a very just if I'm very distracted or I have these these kind of behaviors that I can recognize as shame manifesting, you know, prior to the shame, <laughs> mm-hmm. it manifests in my behaviors. Like I'll I'll comfort eat when I'm not not hungry. Like I yeah. I can ask myself like, what's my stomach saying? What's my gut saying? Am I hungry? Am I depleted in 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 resource? And it's like, nope, you're fine. It's like okay. I'm, I'm feeling, I'm feeling shame about something. So yeah, it's, it's a good practice. It's a really good practice to to get curious about those kind of things. Yeah. 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 Yeah, Food, food related behaviors that feel compulsive so often are a reenactment of shame cycles. Like they just are. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I've got a whole coaching certification in eating psychology. And so that's where I started doing my coaching work. Yeah. Um, yeah, so so big time. That's so huge. Thank you for pointing that out. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, I think I think we covered. Is there anything else you wanna you wanna share around shame? 
Not necessarily. I mean, it's it's just something to, like you already said, is to to to, to destigmatize it as something that is really just bad. Essentially, it's a great key. It's a great gift that can mm-hmm. unlock some of our truth. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. There is a capacity to take shame and recognize. Well, is this a healthy shame that can help me change and grow, or is this a toxic shame that I can transform into guilt? And I know that sounds crazy. It's like, well, how do I want guilt? Mm-hmm. Well, guilt is serviceable because mm-hmm. guilt says I did something wrong. Shame says I am something wrong. So if you can, when we can transform shame into guilt, then we can work to create real powerful growth and change in behavior and change in our choices. You know, I'm big on choices, Peter. Yeah, so, that's right. So, that's right. so that's the only thing I would have to say. Is we could talk about shame forever, but the but the idea is it's not mm-hmm. it's not a boon to your existence. It's something that you can utilize for your benefit. Totally, that's really yeah. cool. Yeah, I really like the driving force of guilt because, yeah, it takes that kind of stagnant um, place where you think I am bad, I'll never be um, anything of worth. And it sort of gives you that sort of uh, momentum energy into to changing. Like you said, choosing, I think choosing is, yeah, it's just one of the one of the essentials to being fulfilled, isn't it, in life? So, yeah. Right. Well, the last section um, on the podcast is called Free 15. And it's kind of your own thing to bring to the table, if you will. Um, have you got anything that you in mind that you want to? Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm big on there's a lot of things I'm working with right now. And as you've seen maybe quite a bit is to work on really how can we create a life we really feel lit, lit up, just lit the fuck up, like totally aligned. And that, that doesn't mean happy all the time, mm-hmm. <laughs> but it does mean really rich and, and, and passionate and on fire and committed to what we're doing and creating deeper love and feeling a sense of real grounded power and freedom. And so what I'd love to chat a little bit about is, is the whole mindset around that, which is to really become the creator in our life and to take ownership and responsibility and to be creative to great to get out great outcomes um rather than a lot of us who've been conditioned to be the consumer of a life and so that's a that's something i'm always passionate about and very passionate about right now so yeah what, what are some of your thoughts around that concept or what questions might you have for me around that? yeah interesting um yeah, I've been doing, obviously, been engaging with with you a lot around what you're doing in your Facebook community, which is Drop the Armor Dojo, mm-hmm. and um, on your profile as well. Um, for me, and also, I, I'm a part of a, a men's group right now called The Alliance, which is Connor Beaton's um, thing, which is really cool as well. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, the kind of creed around that is to be a self um, self-leader, you know, to, like you said, to make that choice to become a creator, like your, your, um, your kind of energy is very similar, but the language is a little different. Um, so yeah, I'm surrounding myself with a lot of, of that kind of intentional self-led, um, make a choice, become a creator rather than a consumer. Mm -hmm. And I really, I really resonate with that because, I think it's a, 
for me, it's around agency and in integrity. And there's other words like honesty, authenticity, you know. Mm-hmm. I think one of the biggest things that we can do unconsciously to ourselves is to rupture our own trust in ourselves, actually. Mm. Uh, like you said, I know that you, you do a lot of work around values and, and aligning people's actions and people's, you know, containers in their life, like their, their work or their relationship or even their own relationship to self to, yeah. to their values. And, it, and I, even before, about five years ago, I guess, I, I came across this idea of like trauma being the frozen aspect of yourself. So, so there's a part of yourself that isn't like quite aligned with, um, there's a gap between how you perceive yourself and actually how you show up and how you, right. And that gap is, is where kind of the discomfort and the, the, the sort of, I I wanted to say pathologies, but, um, I think there's a little bit, maybe we could say that it's, it's where that kind of the seeds of discomfort, I guess, are. Mm. So I do deeply believe in alignment and I think maybe the more that I do healing work is the more that I see that alignment is is really really key to and and the sense of actually being aware of what reality is for someone Mm. um I think the other thing that we can do is is very easily trick ourselves and kind of fool ourselves into being in a position that we're actually not in um in terms of who we are and like what we want to achieve it's it's always better to to do some really intentional honest work with actually where am i rather than what what do i want to see because yeah we can get to that space where like um this is who i am and it's not actually in integrity with with how we show up to the world Right, right. Those are my thoughts on that one. Yeah, yeah. And I'm curious too about um, what your take is, since this is called Light Conversations on Trauma. <laughs> sure. In what ways does trauma show up and either influence someone to be a creator in their life or keep them stuck in more of the consumer space? Yeah. That's What's a great take on that. It's a great question. Thanks for asking. And I think in the sense that trauma is, like I said, the frozen aspect of, of, of ourselves. And I know that mm. Dr. Levine and, you know, Bessel van der Kolk, Dr. Bessel van der Kolk, they've done a lot of research into how trauma affects the body and it's definitely held within the body. So it's like life rubs up against trauma. And, and I always say that like relationships, um, require us to kind of bring our full selves to the to the table in a way like even if we're not able like they keep they keep asking that of us right in these cyclical arguments possibly or conversations possibly that we might not feel like we can ever resolve and i i believe that they're kind of rubbing up against something within us um that we're not able to meet in in a way so i think that that can show up mentally um because trauma is can i mean the shame the shame around trauma 
is so great that um it usually it usually drives a shame cycle which then the um person i know personally i i have been in this place where i'm trying to maintain the shame all the time and and that maintenance of shame leads to to mental disorder as they call it i mean i I would call it an emotional injury or a mental injury um so or it can can show up in those physical things like um like you know heaviness for for example for me heaviness like i never i could never access like my full potential energy on anything um and also let's be honest like i repressed my emotions because i repressed the anger over the trauma and because i couldn't share it wasn't socially acceptable to share it it was stigmatized for you could argue good reasons or yeah or bad you know whatever you want to um project onto that but um the fact is i couldn't share it Mm -hmm. and so i repressed it and so my behavior socially was you know considered antisocial so i would be very you know uh i'd be i'd sort of sometimes i'd blow up in anger sometimes i'd be i wouldn't say a word in a conversation people would wonder why i was being rude um so yeah those are the kind of things really and there's there's so many aspects to this and i think the conversation around ptsd needs to be kind of widened in that sense it's good as a um sort of diagnosis to give someone the sense that they're not actually going crazy and it's a normal response but then the space after that it doesn't ever evolve into anything it can it can be like given to you as an identity Mm-hmm. And, and that's where you end up getting trapped yeah, um, yeah so, I'm, I'm big with you that people get trapped in identities pathologies labels that come with trauma behaviors that come with trauma you having experiences that were traumatic as a young age had you be more internal and you got pegged just like socially whatever socially yeah dysfunctional which might make it hard today to live into actions that would create a rich social life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what I so what I ended up experiencing actually was second order um, difficulties around trauma. Like I uh-huh. had the anger, and then I'd bring that anger to social situations. Someone would call me like um, antisocial, and then I'd have to deal with the fact that I was being perceived as antisocial. Which obviously as a a kid growing up you, right. you you internalize the shame like i'm a bad person why do i do these things yeah so yeah you never you never get past that point until someone who's like safe and secure and knows how to heal trauma like a professional um or a coach if you're more advanced is is like essential and i, I keep saying like what Thomas Heubel says is that trauma is a really intelligent function because it freezes that aspect of you until you can handle it and you're in a safe environment. And that's the key. Like if you open these things mm-hmm. up with people that don't fully understand them, you get re-traumatized. And that is just a never-ending cycle. Mm. Yeah, I feel you. I I hear all that. That's brilliant. And so you're you're so rich and informed when it comes to trauma and traumatic experiences. I've noticed this. Like for me, the work I do with people, I'm not 
trauma counselor specialist, but mm-hmm. trauma, whether it's little daily traumas, which is what most of what we have, a lot of us are dealing with, are big traumas. They often relate, come up with uh, very limiting core beliefs about self or about life or about love. Mm-hmm. And what I've noticed is that they, those traumatic moments have installed these core beliefs that are limiting or negative. But the reality is once we can fish them out and identify them and get clear on them, we can really challenge those beliefs and start to install new core beliefs that are more in alignment with values, more in alignment with the vision that someone has for their life. And we can rewrite the core beliefs that came from traumatic experiences and we can really create powerful beliefs to live into. So to me, that's big. The consumer um, can be a product at times of just believing things that we learned through trauma. And the person who creates a powerful life, hopefully they're doing it consciously and they're not creating a powerful life as a way to avoid having to deal with their trauma. Because a lot of people do that. Yeah, for sure. But they're creating a powerful life because they're learning to step into powerful beliefs that are disconnected from what they learned at younger states, more vulnerable states, moments of pain, moments of trauma. And that's essential. It's essential to me. It's like, you got to at least be able to name and know what experiences have created beliefs that are keeping you from creating then we can then we can be the creator of all the things that we want that's cool yeah for sure and i love i mean one of my favorite films is cloud atlas and um it's an epic it's like three hours long but um Mm -hmm. at the end um there's a kind of soliloquy i guess of one of the main characters talking about you know in um, to first um, transcend the boundary, we must perceive it to be um, possible. To be, we must perceive of ourselves that it it's already so in our minds. And this goes back to kind of around the grief and the and the change is that our minds will not let us. Our minds will not let us go somewhere that they can't imagine um, unless we build a very sophisticated and complex. Um, ideology around uncertainty and we can start enjoying uncertainty that that's still a framework and yeah i i'm interested in that area yeah yeah so nice well thank you so much for joining me joe Oh, you're very welcome. Thanks for having me. I think it's a really rich and probably a different conversation than I'm used to having on podcasts. Thank you. I appreciated it a lot. Lovely. It's been my pleasure as well. And um, I hope it, it helps. I hope it helps some people out there. And I hope, um, I mean, yeah, I just want to say, um, like, I really value what you're doing with your work and, and who you are as a human being. I think this is where we're, we're being called to go in terms of the way the situation we find ourselves in around yeah both systemic oppression and you know climate change crisis as well so it's it's really i think it's really courageous to live this way and i i just want to value that thank you thank you can i take a moment and uh share with listeners where they can find actually both of us hanging out yeah absolutely Cool. Well, I want to encourage people right now, uh, if you want to have more conversations around 
trauma and healing and deeper love and creating senses of grounded power like we talked about with water and really learning to get more aligned with your head, open heart and like solid guts and join Peter and I, you know, I, I've created and I'm hosting this beautiful community that Peter's been a big part of called Drop the Armor Dojo on Facebook. It's really a rich space where people are sharing so beautifully, so authentically because it's set up that way with great human beings like Peter, like me, like yourself, probably if you're listening to this. So I'd love to invite you there. Just go to Facebook and go to Drop the Armor uh, Dojo. Or or you can just email me at any point, joe at dropthearmor.com if you wanted to ask questions or learn more about coaching work or if you wanted to like grill me on something I said that you thought was total BS, go for that too. Yeah. <laughs> I'm open I'm open to it. Welcome. Welcome. Yeah, you're, yeah. All right. Well, thanks for your time, intention, and love today, Joe. Uh, well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you for the listeners for bringing their time and their attention and their love. It's so valuable. And I feel honored that you had me and that they're listening to us. Absolutely. I want to mirror that. Lovely. You know what? I said it last week and I'll say it again. Wow. It's been a couple of weeks since I recorded this podcast episode with Joe Bernstein and revisiting it in the editing process has just been this really profound experience for me for a couple of reasons. One, it, it allows me to see myself as for all the intentional work that I've done around trauma, for everything that I've learned and integrated and also let destruct in my life as per the conversation about change and number two is who I really surround myself with there's an old adage that you are the average of the five people you spend most time with so it's really worth having that conversation who it who is it that I'm surrounded with and I'm really grateful and it really comes out in this podcast the kind of people that I have surrounded myself with just through my interests so that's really good and number three just how much wisdom is in this episode and how excited I am to release it So I hope you enjoyed today's episode and I hope that you got some value out of it as well. And I'm really excited. I'm really excited to to be here on this journey. Thank you for being an active participant in that. Thank you for your time and your attention and your love. Even, Even though this isn't a live medium, It is definitely a contribution of yours, and I thank you. I'm very grateful. If you are interested in supporting the podcast, I've recently set up a Patreon um, account. So I will link that in the show notes as well. Um, Or you can just go to patreon.com and find me there, um, Peter Middleton. Thanks, folks. Lots of love, and I'll see you again soon.